Thanks, Steve, for that very generous introduction. I, I have feel like maybe I should just stop right now um, <laughs> before I, I disprove everything that Steve has just said. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, uh, particularly to see old colleagues like uh, Steve Slick and, and Paul Pope, whose class I just had the opportunity to speak to. Uh, I particularly want to thank the Will Inbiden, who the, the head of the, the Clements Center, and Bobby Chesney, head of the, the Strauss Center. Uh, I want to congratulate you all on the terrific program that you're, you're putting together down here, of which I know that Steve Slick's new program in intelligence studies is going to be a, a major and I, I expect highly successful part. But all I've really tried to do with this book and all I really want to do today is just tell a story. And the story that I want to tell begins early on a Sunday morning. It was a sunny Sunday morning in Islamabad, Pakistan. I was sound asleep in my bedroom behind bolted steel doors. <laughs> you can infer something from that. I'd gone to bed at about 3 o'clock in the morning. I was absolutely exhausted. I'd been sleeping fitfully for maybe three or four hours. And the phone rings. And I confess I may have betrayed a slight degree of irritation when I picked up the phone and said, hello. <laughs> and I immediately regretted it because there was this pause at the other end of the line and then a familiar voice says, did I wake you up, son? Good God, it's the director. So I'm sitting up at attention in bed. And I did the only thing that you can do in those circumstances. I lied. I, I said, no, Mr. Director, I was just getting up. So remember, this is early Sunday morning, my time in Islamabad. It's late Saturday night, Washington time. And George says, look, we're going to be meeting tomorrow morning at Camp David members of the War Cabinet. And we're going to be talking about our war strategy for Afghanistan. So the Pentagon is telling us that there are very few military targets in all of Afghanistan. They can probably hit them in a matter of days. We know where all the terrorist training camps are, but they're all empty. Terrorists have all run away. And he literally asked me, he said, should we bomb empty camps? Think about this. This is... September 23rd, 2001, 12 days after 9-11, the worst one-day disaster in American history since Pearl Harbor. And George Tenet from the Center of American Power in Washington, D.C., is calling halfway around the world, bypassing the entire chain of command, to ask some field operative what we ought to do. If you didn't know we were in trouble before, <laughs> you knew it now. So I, I said, well... Mr. Director, I'm not sure we're thinking about this in the right way. I mean, you're asking me about military tactics. This is fundamentally a political problem. I said, at the end of the day, what we really want to achieve here is some political dispensation in Afghanistan that will do what we can. That is not only chase the terrorists out, which we can probably do ourselves, but keep them out over the long term. Because unless we're going to colonize Afghanistan... Afghans are the solution to this problem, not us. And so, yeah, at the end of the day, we're probably going to have to use military means, but we need to sequence those and calibrate those 
in a way to help us achieve a political objective at the end of the day. So I started to walk him through it. And he was stopping me and asking questions and trying to take notes. And I said, look, Mr. Director, this isn't going to work. This is just taking too much time. But let me try to write all this down. So he said, okay, good idea. It was, he said, it's after 11 o'clock. The helicopter comes for me at 6 tomorrow morning. I have to get up at 5. Can you get me something by then? I said, yes, sir, I can. So I drove into the office and knocked out an eight-page message in about three hours. By this time, my senior lieutenants were coming into the office, and so I circulated it to them, got some very good advice from them, incorporated those changes, and sent it off to tenant security detail with instructions that they should give it to him as soon as he got up. As far as I knew at the time, that was the end of the story. I didn't know what happened after that. Well, he received the message, he read it, sent it out to the other members of the War Cabinet, to Cheney and Rice and Rumsfeld and Powell and Chairman Myers. And they discussed it that morning up at Camp David. And then they made a presentation the following morning, Monday morning, in the White House Situation Room to President Bush. And the president said, done. This is our template going forward. And the first thing I knew was later that Monday afternoon, my time, when I was told suddenly that I had to go on a secure video conference with General Tommy Franks, the combatant commander for the Central Command, who was going to be responsible for the military campaign, to make sure that his battle plan was, in, was working in conjunction with the strategic plan that we had just put together. So, what was it that we said? Well, as I mentioned before, the main point was that at the end of the day, we were trying to achieve a political objective here, through which we might have to use military means. But it was the political objective that was central. We had to have an Afghan government that would keep that country from being, in the future, what it had been in the past, which was a safe haven for international terrorists. And if that could be the Taliban... As much as we didn't particularly like the Taliban, well, then so much the better. That would be a much less risky way forward. But if, as was likely, Mullah Omar was going to refuse the demand from President Bush, refuse to turn over bin Laden and his senior lieutenants, stop al-Qaeda from operating within his country, well, then we were going to have to hit him, and we were going to have to hit him hard as, as a way, among other things, of making an object lesson to the people who were around him. And then we would turn to them and say... Your leader has just held himself up as an enemy of America and the international community. Will you follow the same course? And if they refuse to change policy, well, then we would have to hit them and we would have to hit the, the Taliban more broadly. And I admitted that chances are this is the way that we were going to have to go. We still didn't know yet which way Mullah Omar was going to decide, or his lieutenants for that matter. And I spent some time, as I describe in great detail in the book, talking to the number two official in the Taliban to try to convince him, first of all, to convince his boss that he should change policy, and then when it was clear that his boss wasn't, to convince him to try to push, his, push Mullah Omar aside, take power himself, and do what Mullah Omar would not. And he actually agreed briefly. Um, unfortunately, that agreement did not survive his trip back to Kandahar. And so we ended up having to go to war, as we all know, with the Taliban. But the point I made was that, okay, fine, if we have to go to war with the Taliban, then obviously we have to find Afghan allies in order to do this. We must not appear, I said, to be invading Afghanistan and occupying that country on our own. If we do that, the Afghans will unite against us as they united against the Soviets and the British before us. By the same token, although our 
most obvious ally was the, the so-called Northern Alliance, a collection of the ethnic minorities centered primarily in northern Afghanistan who had been fighting a civil war against the, the Taliban for a number of years. They were our most, most natural ally. But I said, we must not appear simply to be entering a civil war on, on the, the side of the Northern Alliance, because if we do, the far more numerous Pashtuns from whom the Taliban is drawn will see us coming in and siding with their enemies against them. And although there are many within the, the Pashtun world who have had it up to here with the Taliban and are willing, many of them, to rise up against the Taliban, if we are seen to be working in league with their enemies, they will recoalesce around the Taliban and the situation will be worse rather than better. So at the same time that we conduct a campaign, if there is in fact going to be a campaign on behalf of the Northern Alliance, we have to be sure that there are Pashtuns with us as well. And we were fortunate in that regard that we had spent the previous 18 months, I and my station, reaching out to a number of warlords, Pashtun tribal leaders, many of them being veterans of the anti-Soviet jihad of the 1980s, people who had worked at least indirectly with the CIA and had a favorable impression of the CIA and of the Americans who had helped them drive out the, the Soviets. And we convinced many of them that, yes, they should rise up against the Taliban in theory. So now after 9-11, we turned to these same warlords and we said, okay, here it is. Here's your opportunity. You say that you want to go back and seize power from the, from the Taliban, in many cases the Taliban having taken power from them in the first place. Now's your opportunity. If you will rise up against the Taliban, you'll have the full weight of the U.S. military with you. But almost to a person, they demurred. You don't survive in Afghanistan by coming in on the wrong side of a fight. So they wanted to make sure that, first of all, the Americans were serious, that, in fact, we were going to attack the Taliban. And then, once the battle started, they wanted to get a sense as to which way this thing was going to go before they committed themselves. They didn't want to put their heads up for fear that the Taliban would cut them off. And, in fact, there were only two Pashtun tribal leaders of any note who actually agreed that they would go in and try to take the fight to the Taliban. One was Hamid Karzai, whom we all know, some of us love. <laughs> Two-time president of Afghanistan. And the other was an individual by the name of Gulagash Sherzai, who was the former mayor, former governor of Kandahar province. He had the dubious distinction of being the first provincial governor in Afghanistan to be overthrown by the Taliban when they began to rise to power in 1994. These were the only two. And so most of, much of the book is actually taken up with the harrowing story of how these two Pashtun tribal leaders went back into Afghanistan, managed to rally their tribal followers, survive long enough for the Americans to actually come in, the CIA and the Special Forces to, to come in and, uh, and support them along with the, the U.S. Air Force, and then make their way down to Kandahar where they finally uh, converged on the 7th of December 2001, 88 days, as Steve just said, after 9-11. And you can see the, the map here of Hamid Karzai's progress, and I won't walk you through all that with all of the mind-numbing Afghan place names, but it was a very close-run thing, and quite frankly, we were just lucky that he survived and managed in the end to drive the Taliban and al-Qaeda out of Kandahar. At the same time, we were fighting a parallel war, if you will, within Pakistan itself, because as our operations inside Afghanistan gained traction, al-Qaeda realized that this was not a welcome place for them anymore, and they began fleeing in droves out of Afghanistan. And we were working hand-in-glove with the infamous Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI, 
using our intelligence and their muscle to pick up these people, as we did literally in the hundreds. And many of them ended up becoming a, a, a substantial portion of the population at, uh, at Guantanamo Bay at the end of the day. There were other adventures along the way. There was a little group of foreign missionaries, including two young American women who had been taken captive by the Taliban, and somehow and probably we managed to rescue them as the Taliban was fleeing from Kabul. There were a group of Pakistani scientists who we had good reason to believe might have provided nuclear material or, God forbid, a nuclear weapon from the Pakistani arsenal to al-Qaeda. I don't have to tell you how that got Washington's attention before we got to the bottom of that. A, little, a few months later, we had a very close brush with all-out war between India and Pakistan. I don't have to remind anybody in this room that both India and Pakistan are armed with nuclear weapons. The most improbable aspect of this whole thing was, was how successful we were. All of these issues that I've just described all turned out unbelievably well. Things don't normally go this well. And in fact, in hindsight, I would say that our victory, as we thought it was at the time against al-Qaeda and the Taliban, actually came too easily. In hindsight, I can say that we really didn't fully understand how and why we had succeeded as we did, and therefore we didn't understand how tenuous the success was or how relatively easily the Taliban could reassert itself and potentially come back to power. And it would take us a lot more time than we have available here today to go through and catalog the list of mistakes, frankly, that we, and particularly the Afghans, made that provided the opening for the Taliban to reassert itself. Among other things, we in the United States, we turned our attention away from Afghanistan. We're focused like a laser beam on Iraq. And in fact, I went back to Washington and found myself the CIA mission manager responsible from the Washington side for our operations in Iraq. And I spent two and a half character building years <laughs> focusing on that. But by the time I came back and started to focus once again on Afghanistan and Pakistan, this time as the director of the CIA Counterterrorism Center, and made a trip in the spring of 2005 out to Afghanistan and to Pakistan, already we were beginning to see that the situation was starting to slip away from us, that the Taliban was beginning to reassert itself in substantial parts of Afghanistan. At the time, we thought that we could still arrest their progress, but you could see that things were beginning to slip away from us. And in my humble estimation, after 2005, we as a government made a very serious mistake. You remember that war plan that we'd written back in the beginning that contained certain principles that we said we really needed to follow, principle among them being that Afghans have to be in front, Americans behind. This is, this is an Afghan struggle which Americans are trying to support rather than an American struggle in a foreign country. Well, we put all that aside. And essentially because our Afghan allies were showing themselves to be not quite up to the task, we essentially took it over. We decided, in effect, that Afghanistan was too important to be left to the whims of Afghans. And so at the height of our surge, beginning in 2009, we had 100,000 U.S. troops. We had an additional 40,000 NATO. We were spending $100 billion a year. We completely overwhelmed this very small, very primitive agrarian country with a tiny GDP and, at best, nascent national institutions. And while 
the U.S. military in particular achieved some great things. We, we should have known and we quickly learned that the successes that we had, the progress that we were able to make were, was progress that could not be sustained by the Afghans over the long term. Which brought us down to where we are today which I would argue was substantially an American withdrawal from Afghanistan. And my fear is that having tried in the years after 2005, up until just recently, having tried to do too much, I fear that we are compounding that error now by trying to do too little. And the last of the American troops, it's a very, very small residual presence there now, the last of the American troops is due to leave by 2017. So I'm very, very concerned about that. And we can talk about that in, in a little bit more detail. This book was a long time in coming. I actually came up with the title for this book back in 2002. I had the idea that someday I would want to write this extraordinary story of these 88 days. And when I got out of CIA in 2006 and 2007, I kind of toyed with the idea of writing the book then, and, but I got tied up with other things. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I really got seriously to the task, but actually I'm glad that I waited. Because if I'd written this book in 2006, it would have essentially been, from my perspective, an adventure story, the story of the 88 days. But now we know at least a substantial part of the rest of the story. And so rather than telling the story of what I now like to call the first American-Afghan war in those 88 days, now that adventure story, which I tell very much from my own perspective, is now bracketed by a larger geopolitical story the story of how we won, or at least we thought we won, the first American-Afghan war, how we at best fought to a standstill in the second American-Afghan war, and how, if my fears are realized, we may yet have to come back once again to Afghanistan when the global jihad shifts from where it is centered right now, primarily in Iraq and Syria, where global jihadists are again forced to find a new safe haven. They may yet again turn their sights to the Taliban-controlled portions of Afghanistan, and we may, I fear, be required to come in and fight a third American-Afghan war. Thank you all very much for your attention. And some people seem disturbed by this. Um, <laughs> thank you, again, thank you very much for your attention, and we'll just open the, the story, open the floor uh, of questions. Okay. Uh-oh. But when you ask questions, we've allowed ourselves plenty of time, so this will be great. We can morph into a discussion here. Please identify yourself. Tell Bob uh, who you are, mm -hmm. how you come at this problem. There's a lot of experience out here in the room, so I think mm -hmm. we've got some good questions. So Paul Pope and I spent a lot of time with the students here at the LBJ School. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the first things we explained to folks about intelligence is that intelligence is not the same as policy making. Mm -hmm. And the responsibility of the intelligence officer and the intelligence agencies is to provide information, objective, neutral, and allow the elected and appointed officials in our government to make the policy decisions. Seems to me the plan for going to war in a distant land mm -hmm. after a catastrophic attack on our homeland is policy making. Uh, Arguably. CIA chief of state <laughs> Islamabad yeah. uh, probably deserves the title and principal architect of that policy. Mm -hmm. so what happened here? What are the elements that go into placing the CIA, placing one of their field officers in a position of 
not dictating, but, but very much uh, recommending and uh, encouraging a specific policy. Mm -hmm. So did you all hear the question? Okay. Um, yeah, in fact, as I, as I state in the book, this was breaking all the rules. I mean, we're taught from the time that we're pups that we are supposed to inform policy and not try to make policy. In fact, we are not supposed to prescribe policy. We have to be very, very careful that we do not make anything that appears to be even a suggestion for what policy ought to be. Now, we can tell people what's happening, which we hope will have some, some influence over their decision making. We can give them our best judgments analytically as to what the likely results will be of various alternative American policies. But we're not supposed to be coming in and advocating a particular policy course. And yet when I got that phone call from George Tenet, that's exactly what he was asking me. And you know, we all have opinions. I had some pretty strong opinions about <laughs> Afghanistan and Pakistan. I'd been there for a couple of years. So I said, well, okay, he asked me. I'll tell him. But it was very much breaking the rules. And I think the reason that we were turned to as an agency, and I perhaps as an individual, to actually be policy prescriptive was because we were in a very privileged position on the ground that nobody else in the U.S. government was. And particularly if you took seriously my admonition that this really needed to be an Afghan-led effort, we CIA were the ones who had those relationships. We knew all of the Afghan warlords. We had had people with the Northern Alliance up in the, the Panjshir Valley. We had been reaching out for a long time, uh, just in the few months before 9-11, to all of these, the, these Pashtun tribal leaders, many of whom we had at least distant relationships with dating back to the 1980s. There's only one entity within the U.S. government that's capable of marshalling and maintaining those kinds of relationships in a far-flung part of the world uh, on an institutional basis, and that's the CIA. And that's why we were sort of thrust, you know, absent any better alternative, into a leadership role in the war in Afghanistan. Bob, thank, thank you for that great presentation. Uh, Jeremy Suri, a professor here at the LBJ School in the History Department, we had the pleasure of having lunch together. Yeah. Um, I'd like you to comment more on the relationship with Pakistan. Mm -hmm. uh, you, the way you depict things in the book, the Pakistanis are pretty cooperative during the 88 days, mm -hmm. uh, though you're careful not to call them allies, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But how should we understand uh, the Pakistani position during this war? Mm -hmm. And what should we learn about managing uh, what are, I think, pretty horrible relations at times that we have with Pakistan. Mm -hmm. How should we think about this? Yeah, well, my time in Pakistan was really, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times as far as our relations with the Pakistanis were concerned. Uh, as Jeremy has just pointed out, we had very, very cooperative relations with the Pakistanis during the period of about a year in particular, just after 9-11. Well, they seemed particularly good in contrast with what they had been for the two years plus before, which were abysmal. We had had a very close relationship with Pakistan during the 1980s because the Pakistanis were giving us a platform and facilitating our aid to the Afghan Mujahideen who were driving the, the Soviets out of Afghanistan. And as we were doing that, we had to do it in the context of legislation which had been passed in the U.S. Congress which said that you must not give the Pakistanis any aid of any sort whatsoever if they are working toward development of a nuclear weapon. Well, we had a growing body of evidence, you know, sort of draw a veil over that. We had a growing body of evidence during the 1980s which said that the Pakistanis were doing just that. They were trying to, to build a nuclear weapon. Well, we sort of managed to avoid that while we needed them to drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan. 1989 rolls around, the Soviets are suddenly gone, 
And lo and behold, we discovered that the Pakistanis, God forbid, are developing a nuclear weapon. <laughs> and we sanctioned them three ways from Sunday. This was not lost on them. And so our relations were, with the Pakistanis were very, very bad. And even on issues where, quite frankly, they had no reason not to cooperate with us. Now, as, as a matter of, of national policy, and for understandable reasons, even if there were reasons that we didn't agree with, the, the, the Pakistanis believed that they needed to support the Taliban as an instrument of national policy in Afghanistan, where they had very, very important interests. Al-Qaeda, they didn't care about it at all. There's no reason for, us, for them not to cooperate with us against al-Qaeda, except that they didn't like us. And once, one time only, I actually got the head of the Pakistani intelligence service to admit that. We were, drive, we were in Washington. In fact, it was just before 9-11. We were driving up the Georgia Washington Parkway in a car. And finally, I put it to him directly. I said, I said uh, General Mahmoud, said, have you been refusing to cooperate with us because of the Pressler Amendment? This is the legislation that Congress had passed. And he very reluctantly looked away. And then slowly he said yes. He wouldn't cooperate with us simply out of, out of peak. Understandable. And had they been cooperating with us in those previous years, 9-11 might never have happened. Well, when 9-11 did happen, and they were given a very stark choice to make, basically they were told, you're either with us or you're against us, and they decided they were going to be with us. And as bad as, our, in fact, as non-existent as our cooperation against terrorists had been before 9-11, it just it turned on a dime, and it was 180 degrees different. And basically, th there was nothing that, that they wouldn't do that we asked them to do. It was, it was absolutely stark. Now, that said, it wasn't very many months after 9-11 that we could begin to see a little bit of daylight. They were still cooperating with us very closely against the Taliban. I'm sorry, against al-Qaeda. But with the Taliban, you know, the... the the, the euphoria, if you will, of that first policy change was beginning to wear off, and they were beginning to say to themselves, oh, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, we don't know. We've seen this movie before. We don't know how long the Americans are going to be around. Uh, it's a good chance that coming out of this war, the Northern Alliance, which was no friend of Pakistan, many of whose senior members were close, closely allied with India, we, we think they're probably going to dominate a new Kabul government. It's probably going to be hostile to us. We need to start hedging our bets here and maybe not completely break our ties with the Taliban. And that slowly became pretty clear. By the spring of 2002, it was pretty clear we weren't going to get effective cooperation anymore against the leadership of the Taliban. But frankly, we weren't willing to let that get in the way because we thought the Taliban was a spent force politically. We were focused like a laser beam on al-Qaeda. Sorry, I overlooked you before. Hi, Nina Silov. I'm a postdoctoral fellow with the Clement Center. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for coming to visit us. Thanks. I have a question about the eight-page strategy that you wrote. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that there was a problem with that strategy, either in the strategy itself or in its implementation, mm -hmm. in that it required being closely coordinated with the public declaratory policy of the United States mm -hmm. government in order to affect the kind of internal political change that you were hoping for. Mm -hmm. Um, and which was the central goal of the strategy. That's just one quick question. A second mm -hmm. quick question was, in that strategy, what was the role, if any, of the Northern Alliance? Right. Um, well, you know, one of the things that I, I should have mentioned before, that it's, it's a well-known fact that no plan survives contact with the enemy. <laughs> well, this plan was no exception, believe me. 
And so very, very quickly, we saw completely unanticipated consequences of some of our early actions, and things began to, to, to take directions that, that we didn't fully uh, appreciate or predict beforehand. But to get to the, to the first part uh, of your question, absolutely. I, quite frankly, when I, when I first put that, that plan so-called together, I, I was, I was kind of naive. And I, I really thought that we could get the U.S. government to operate as sort of an integral whole to include our, our uh, sort of um, uh, public communication strategy, if you will. So when I was saying that, okay, we, I said very clearly, we, we need to make very clear to the Afghans and to everybody else precisely what we're doing and why we're doing it. And if we want to demonstrate to the rest of the Taliban leadership why it is that we have just struck Mullah Omar in the first, first night of the bombing campaign, we hit his compound, just missed him by about 30 minutes, unfortunately. Um, might have made a huge difference if, if, we'd, if we'd killed him and then we're able to deal with other elements in the, the leadership. But, but we, so we need to make it very, very clear why it is that we're striking Mullah Omar and what this therefore means for you as the, re- the other members of the Taliban leadership shura. And then on down the line. And you know, th- that, that was completely naive. I mean, to get the U.S. government to, to work, all of the cabinet secretaries to work off of a common script in terms of their public pronouncements, particularly Secretary Rumsfeld, um, was, it, it, it was unrealistic, let's put it that way. And so it, it, it was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was a disaster by any means, but it, it was not the, the, the finely tuned uh, you know, uh, public diplomacy machine that I had sort of hoped we would be able to marshal as part of this effort. Um, and the second part of your question was... Right, in the, the Northern Alliance. Well, actually, there too. Now, again, I wasn't completely naive, and I realized that, that as a matter of necessity, we were going to have to cooperate with the Northern Alliance. Um, in the way that I wrote that paper, I actually probably went a little bit too far in order to make my point. Uh, that is, that, that we need to be very, very careful in the way that, that we marshal our support of the Northern Alliance, because I was afraid that if we came in strongly on their behalf, and if they succeeded uh, too thoroughly and too rapidly, that that would then cause the, the, the Pashtun, not majority, but plurality within the country to recoalesce around the Taliban. And I probably made that point a little bit more strongly than I should have in order to, to, uh, to make the, uh, the basic point. And I was probably unrealistic in terms of the degree to which my colleagues, you know, it's always easy to, to tell other people what they're supposed to be doing, um, in terms of the, the degree of control that I was hoping my colleagues in northern Afghanistan would be able to impose on the Northern Alliance. Once the, the Taliban lines uh, were broken, uh, I would defy anybody to convince the Northern Alliance that they shouldn't come down and take Kabul. Um, but that's what I blithely suggested that they should do. Well, needless to say, they weren't, they weren't able to do that and, and arguably shouldn't. Um, and actually, the, I guess in part because of the relationships that we had been able to establish with tribal leaders in the South, it didn't have the negative consequences on our relations with the Pashtuns that, uh, that I feared that it might. talked about the potential of a third war in Afghanistan mm-hmm. um, or another war or some sort of future war in mm-hmm. Afghanistan because of our failure in our past war. Mm-hmm. Could you brief us some on what the circumstances would be that would require another war with yeah. Afghanistan? And mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me that the clearest lesson from your book was a gross unprofessionalism and mm-hmm. lack of preparation mm-hmm. on the military political side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, so 
Right. What would our objectives be? And why would we do a better job this time? Yeah. Um, actually, you, you might be amused. At, there's a, apropos of this whole thing about, you know, where was the JCS? They're supposed to be writing, writing the war plans. Well, th- that's a thought that actually occurred to General Franks, oddly <laughs> enough. Um, and he didn't think that JCS should be writing it. He, he thought he should be writing it. Oh, and by the way, in fact, he already had written it. And uh, anyway, it's, it's kind of amusing, I think, it, it, uh, as we were waiting in that, that video teleconference that I, I described a few minutes ago. Uh, we're waiting for George Tennant to show. George was, was late, as usual. And, um, and so I'm, I'm sitting there you know, watching General Franks on the screen, and he sort of goes into this monologue. And he's just sort of thinking out loud about, you know, why the heck is it that I'm here in the first place? Uh, I've already written a war plan, thank you very much. Briefed it to the president. The president kind of liked it. Um, and why is Secretary Rumsfeld telling me that I've got to go and ask CIA what the plan is? You know? So I'm just sort of you know, sitting there saying, well, you're kind of... <laughs> right. Come on, George. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I mean, your, your, your point is, uh, is extremely well taken. But what would cause us, unfortunately, to have to go back into Afghanistan? The, the thing that I'm really concerned about is not so much the, the foreign troop presence in Afghanistan going forward, although I, I think that is important. And frankly, I think that we should be taking a more muscular but far more sustainable role uh, with a limited number of troops than, in fact, seems to be the, the plan going forward. But I'm particularly concerned not just about the troop presence, but about the money. And I, I, I like to say, some people think that this, this, is, this is maybe a, a provocative way of putting it, but, but quite frankly, in many respects, the residual U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan is useful primarily as a hostage presence. Because so long as U.S. troops are there, the money will follow. But as soon as we no longer have U.S. troops to protect in Afghanistan, it's very much an open question as to whether you're going to get any substantial amount of money out of Congress to go to Afghanistan. And I'm very concerned about that. And there's a historical precedent for all of this. When the communist government uh, that had fought against the the Mujahideen during the the anti-Soviet jihad, when they fell, they didn't fall because the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan. In fact, they survived for another two years after the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan. The, The reason they fell was because the money got cut off two years later. And that's the the history that I'm very concerned about repeating in the future. Now, the question is, does it matter? Surely the Taliban has learned something from the recent past. Put ourselves in, in, in their place and you'd say, well, gosh, we allowed our country to be used as a safe haven for international terrorists. It didn't go very well for us for a little over a decade. Maybe we shouldn't do that in the future. But the concern that I have, and again, you know, this, there may be an error on my part here because it's always easy to judge the future on, on the basis of the past when, in fact, individuals and organizations do change and evolve over time. But my concern is that it's just in their, in their DNA that if foreign jihadists, international terrorists, pitch up on their shores in the future, that it's going to be very hard for them to say no. I can't picture them saying no. They tend to see, the world tends to be kind of binary for those guys. It's kind of a black and white world. Is, is a certain course dictated by Islam or isn't it? And if good Muslims who are being pursued by the infidel West pitch up on your shores, I can't imagine the Taliban saying, no, you must go away. Maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. But my fear is that we, the, the, at least the Taliban-controlled portions of Afghanistan could again, at, uh, at some future time, when the front lines in the global jihad, if you will, have shifted once again. I don't think that uh, the so-called Islamic State, ISIS, ISIL, whatever you want to call it. I don't think that they're going to succeed in the long run in Iraq and Syria. It's going to take a long time for them 
to be defeated, but I think eventually that they are going to have to displace. And those inclined toward global jihad are going to be looking for some new base of operations from which to stage. And my fear is that they will once again discover Afghanistan in significant numbers, and that if the Taliban has taken over or it, and or if they are controlling su substantial parts of the country, that we're going to have to help the government to sort that out. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I may seem energetic right now, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, intelligence and maybe government service in general at, at this, this level, frankly, I think is a, is a young person's game. And uh, uh, in my, my latter years uh, in CIA, when I was the director of the Counterterrorism Center, uh, I was involved in a lot of controversies. I made a lot of enemies. Um, and uh, I, I, was, I was dismissed from my job at, uh, at the CTC. And actually, you know, I, I saw it as an opportunity because one of the things, I'll tell you, I mean, there's something, I think you can probably tell just in the tone of my voice that I'm very enthusiastic about this work. I absolutely loved every minute of my career. I couldn't believe people paid me to do this. But uh, it's, a very, it's a very seductive work. And I was afraid that I was going to wake up one day, you know, long on the far side of 65, never having done anything else in my life. And I went into the CIA right out, right out of graduate school. And I saw this as an opportunity to maybe go and do something else in life and see things that you, you really can't do from the closed society of the Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, so I, I, think, I like to think I made the most of it. I certainly enjoyed it. Um, but uh, I, I think that at a certain point, uh, you know, it's, it's important that people who, who haven't, it's great to have experience, but one of the things that I saw as I, as I entered into the management ranks at CIA, that a disproportionate amount of the success was achieved by very junior officers. And the reason that I think they were able to do that was because they didn't know that certain things were impossible. <laughs> the experience had told me was impossible. That's kind of a good thing. So I think at a certain point, it's good to step aside and let the, the next generation come up. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Kevin Merrill, master's student here at OBJ. I was in Professor Smoke's class earlier. Mm -hmm. um, do you believe the United States was overzealous in the response, primarily with the speed at which the military entered the operational theater without mm -hmm. fully understanding the tactics on the ground? Mm -hmm. A prime example of the Northern uh, Alliance, we misestimated their capability in Bora Bora. And mm -hmm. then the follow-on question is, is, do you think it's important to have the moral courage to say, slow down, we don't understand what's going on. Hmm. Yeah, boy, that's, that, that's really interesting. And, you know, as I look back on, the, on that period, and so much happened, again, sort of centering on those, on those 88 days, so much happened in that time. And, it, and it, was, it was a very short amount of time, and yet it seemed like eons. Because, I mean, again, so let's remember 9-11, put ourselves back in the shoes you know, that, that we filled in, on, the, on the 12th of September 2001. I mean, this was a deep shock, shock to Americans, that we had been struck in this manner on our own soil. And something had to be done. And, I mean, there, there was just a tremendous uh, outpouring of outrage from Americans. And that, of course, was felt at a political level, all politics being local. And it, something was going to have to be done. It was going to have to be done quickly. And, in fact, there was a piece that I, I appeared in the New York Times that, that I wrote a, a few weeks ago, you know, where I was sort of pausing. Frankly, I mentioned before how lucky we were that we succeeded as rapidly as we did in Afghanistan. That could easily have, have not gone nearly as well. Um, 
there were times when I would not have given a dime for Hamid Karzai's life. How he survived before we, we came in to, to help him, frankly, I, I don't know. Um, we could easily have ended up with no Pashtun allies in the south. And what would we have done then? Because remember, I was saying that we, we need to have Pashtuns out in the front. We had a large force of Marines that was down, you know, sitting by itself, alone in the desert in southern Afghanistan. Well, at the time, if they had asked me, say, say we had no Pashtun allies. And if they'd asked me, I would have said, look, we need to go slowly here. You know, just give us some more time. I'm not sure that there would have been time. And I suspect that, they, that those Marines would have been ordered north in order to take the lead in southern Afghanistan. It would have changed the, the whole political tenor of the war. And quite frankly, I think we would have ended up in a, in a losing, open-ended counterinsurgency far sooner than, in fact, we did. So, yeah, I think you're right. It takes a tremendous amount of moral courage to be the one, you know, to, to have the... the the, the courage of your convictions and say, look, wait a minute, you know, we, there are unintended consequences to what you're doing. We need to slow down and, and consider this a little bit seriously. But under certain political circumstances, you're not going to succeed. You, you just aren't. So was there another part of your question that I haven't answered? Okay, thank you. Will. All right, uh, Will N. Bowden, Concerned Citizen. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, to that last one, tell us a little yeah. bit more about Karzai. Yeah. Uh, the, the Karzai you knew in 2001, mm-hmm. the Karzai that he became, how and why you think the U.S.-Karzai relationship went south? Yeah, interesting character, Hamid Karzai. Um, a, a, a very um, admirable individual, I think, in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. So he was one of the very few Afghans, you know, back you know, before 9-11, who really genuinely had a conception of a unified Afghanistan. He was somebody who really could appeal to people from any you know, religious, sectarian, ethnic persuasion in, uh, in Afghanistan. That's part of the reason why the UN tapped him, that and, the, and his success against the, the Taliban on the ground, why they tapped him as a Pashtun to, to be the, the first interim leader of, of Afghanistan. But he was, even in those early days, he was, he was a peculiar guy to deal with. And I, I relate to the story uh, after we had you know, sort of snatched him by helicopter out of, uh, out of Urzgan province where he was surrounded by the Taliban. We flew him and six of his tribal elders out to, to Pakistan, barely escaped you know, with, with their lives. And, uh, and, and it was there that we were able to, to join him and his, uh, his elders up with a team of CIA and special forces. But while he's there, now, now mind you, he'd been inside Afghanistan and, and speaking to the international press by satellite phone, leading... The, the uprising against the, the, the Taliban in the heart of Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. So we fly him back out. We didn't want anybody to know that we'd flown him back out. Here he's supposed to be this independent tribal leader taking the, the fight to the Taliban. This doesn't look good if the Americans come in and rescue you and bring you out to Pakistan, which is the traditional enemy of your country. Doesn't look good. Bad optics. And so he's, he's down there, and the, the CIA handler who was dealing with at the time, who's, who has since in just the past few weeks risen to be the head of the, of the clandestine service, by the way, um, taught him well. I'm very proud. Um, uh, he, he gets on the phone to me and he says, I, I think you better talk to Hamid. And so he says, Hamid wants to go up to Islamabad and hold public meetings with, uh, the, the, with the press and international diplomats and the president of, of, uh, of Pakistan. So I got on the phone. And I, I, this was breathtaking. I, I didn't know where to start. So I, I said, well, you know, Hamid, I, I understand. We called him Hamid most days. I, I understand that you know, you, you, you want to come up to Islamabad? Oh, yes, he said. Uh, I want to meet with, with the president and some ambassadors also. I said, well, haven't you been telling people that you're leading, you know, the uprising inside of Afghanistan? And he said, oh, yes. 
I said, well, and don't you think it's important that you be seen as, as an independent leader? Oh, yes, it's very important that I be, I'm, I'm independent, yes. Well, if the Americans snatch you and bring you out to, Pakistan, out to Islamabad, and it seems as though you're a ward of the Americans and the Pakistanis, do you think that's going to hurt you? He thought about that for a minute. He said, so you think I shouldn't go? <laughs> <laughs> and and this, this was a tendency that you saw with, with Hamid that, that you know, he, he tended to follow the advice of the last person he talked to. <laughs> and, it was, and it was really scary. And there were other instances like that you know, where I, I wasn't sure which was worse. Did he come up with some cockamamie idea or that we were so easy, he was, it was so easy to talk him out of it? Yeah, it, it <laughs> so, I mean, so yeah, he's a very admirable fellow, admirable fellow in a lot of respects, but also kind of unsteady. Um, tremendously courageous. Oh, my God. I mean, he, he should have been killed several times by, by the Taliban. And he was almost completely oblivious to his own, uh, to his own health. Um, really was willing to, to give you know, the, the last measure for, for his country. But I think because of those psychological peculiarities, I think that exacerbated what was already a really difficult situation for him. You know, being you know, the, the Afghan face of what was substantially an American effort in his country was really hard. And I think it really wore, I don't know this for a fact, but knowing Hamid and knowing that the circumstances, the fact that the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, would not talk to him must have really worn on him. They were willing to talk to the Americans. In fact, what they were saying was, you know, look, we could talk to the, to the puppet or we could talk to the puppet master. We'll talk to the puppet master, thank you very much. And, and that thing, just, just the lack of respect that he saw and that he felt as the nominal head of a government that had very, very little power in its own country, I think that really wore on him over time. And he would have delegations of citizens you know, who would, who had, um, uh, you know, whose, whose family members had been killed in night raids by you know, U.S. Special Forces. And, of course, they would be outraged, and he would be outraged in empathy with them. And then he's turning to the Americans and saying, what are you doing? What are you doing to my country? So you can understand how, over time, this would have a caustic sort of vitiating effect on, on his relationship with the Americans. And by the end, it, it was just hopeless. He, he, just, he just had to go. Yes, sir. Uh, Russ Trowbridge, I'm retired here in mm-hmm. Austin. Um, I'm curious about why Tenet would call you COS in, us, in mm-hmm. uh, Islamabad to uh, sort of get a view on Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Was he also calling the COS in Kabul? Um, was the relationship between um, Pakistan and Afghanistan good enough so that you were getting a lot of material on uh, mm-hmm. Afghanistan that may not have Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I should have pointed this out in, the, in my, my presentation. Uh, the, the reason he didn't go to turn to the, the COS in, in Kabul was because there was none. <laughs> uh, so we had no official U.S. presence uh, inside of Afghanistan. There was no embassy. There was no mission. Uh, there was no CIA station. And the, the division of labor, as it, as it uh, fell, was, was for me in Pakistan having responsibility for all of Taliban-controlled Afghanistan as well. So that was about 90 percent of the country just before 9-11. And, um, and our efforts in the north with the Northern Alliance, and we we'd maintained relationships with them, and we were sending delegations of officers in to, to maintain that relationship with them. Uh, that was being uh, marshaled uh, directly from, from Washington, from the Counterterrorism Center. So, yeah, in that respect, it was, it was natural. And, and also, I, I developed a, a personal relationship with George um, uh, while I was at the, uh, the director of training. And so he, he knew me. He felt, he felt comfortable reaching out to me. He should have known better, frankly, but, <laughs> but there it is. Um, yes. Um, my name is Fazila Wahabzada. I'm a student at the LBJ School. Mm-hmm. My question is, where do you see the future of Afghanistan's governance with the growth of homegrown paramilitary groups mm-hmm. consisting of ethnic minorities? So in a way, they mm-hmm. kind of seem like 
Northern Alliance 2.0, right. the site of um, fighting the Taliban or the prospect of mm -hmm. an Islamic state group. Okay. Did, did you all hear the, the, the question? Okay, and, and tell me if I've got this right. Um, that basically, how, how do we see the future of Afghanistan in light of the fact that you have a lot of homegrown militias once again rising up, not only among the, the, the Pashtuns, but also among you know, the, the erstwhile Northern Alliance? And um, is, that, is that okay? Um, and you know, this points up a couple of things. One is that Afghans you know, are, are not stupid. Uh, they've been watching what's happening. They, they've known for quite some time that the Americans were headed for the exit, very concerned about the future of their country. And so Afghans you know, from all over the country, you know, all ethnicities, uh, have been making plans for the future and realizing and fearing that they may not be able to rely on the central government. No Afghan central government has ever really been able to control the country. Realizing that they may not be able to, to rely on the central government, they are preparing to take matters into their own hands and to protect their own you know, tribal and clan and, and, uh, and other interests. So that, that's, that, that's an issue. But I, I think it raises a larger point and points to what I would regard as, as a very important error, I think, that, that we made uh, as the Americans. When, when I left Pakistan in the summer of 2002, Obviously, we had been working with warlords, for lack of a better term, both in the north and in the south. And we had very good relations with them. And what I suggested at the time that CIA should do was that, that we should play, again, we should continue to play a non-traditional role there. That here we have these relationships, which normally, under normal circumstances, we would use just for intelligence collection. But I felt that we should use those for a broader political purpose, that we, given those relationships that we had, institutional relationships of trust, that we should be taking the lead with others in the U.S. government, the military, USAID, the State Department, and at, at the local level with you know, local regional warlords, uh, helping to create uh, teams, sort of, you know, multi-agency teams that would work with those local leaders and basically help them to be the best warlords that they could be. Knowing the history of warlords in Afghanistan, which is not always pleasant. The military, on the other hand, felt very strongly that no, that that is repeating the mistakes of the past. After all, the reason that the Taliban rose beginning in 1994 in the first place was because the, the, the victorious commanders of the Mujahideen, as soon as the Soviets gone, were, were gone, fell to fighting amongst themselves. And the country was in absolute chaos. And many of these warlords, particularly in the South, but also elsewhere, were very abusive. They, they, were, they had an extractive relationship with the people over whom they were, normally, uh, they were nominally governing. And it was in outrage against them that the, the Taliban rose up as, as a clean... Uh, Islamically correct force to push these these warlords aside and establish Islamic law, which at the time to the population seemed like a very good thing. When you when you're living in absolute insecurity, security is the is the thing that's foremost on your mind. That was one thing that the, the Taliban could do and still can do now. So they said, well, look, if if we allow warlords to reassert themselves, then we're just recreating that situation that occurred after the anti-Soviet jihad. And so instead, what we really need to do is to reinforce the central government. We need to help them establish a very large and very strong army and national police force so they can assert their control over the entire country. 
Well, the problem that I saw with that was that the, the size of army that we set out to build was, was one that was going to be completely unsustainable by the Afghan government. It was reliant on upwards of you know, nine, ten billion dollars a year just to maintain that army. That, that, that's, that's more than, than the, the baseline GDP of Afghanistan before 9-11. It, it just wasn't going to be sustainable. And therefore, as much as you might want to turn Afghanistan into something that it had never been before, because that would be a, an ideal solution, my fear was that we were making the perfect the enemy of the good. And that as, as, as fraught as a policy which was centered on local warlords was in terms of the potential abuses, that that, that was actually realistic and that's what we really ought to be focusing on and that we could perhaps if we were wise and if we were lucky, establish a situation where the, the, the local militias that were being built up by, by local warlords did have some link with the central government. And I, and I had you know, certain models for this that I'd seen elsewhere in, in, uh, in Pakistan. Uh, and that we could, as a condition of our assistance to those local warlords, make sure that they were answerable to tribal elders and, and others in their respective areas. The problem with these warlords is that, is that typically they would get power in a particular area and they would favor their own tribes against everybody else. And after a while, people get fed up and they, and they turn against them and the situation falls apart. Well, I felt that understanding that, we could influence these folks in, in positive ways that hopefully over time would, um, would reestablish natural checks and balances within the political context that, that they operated. So that, that's all... That's all very optimistic, uh, and maybe it would have turned out badly, but I felt my, my view was that that was our best chance for success in the future. And we'll never know that because that's not the, that's not the road that we took primarily. Um, but I, but the, 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 the centralized governing role is something that I think clearly has not, has not worked. Yes, sir. Oh, I, I, I've done you before. So. Okay. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Yes, sir. Two questions. One is, it's my understanding that the Chinese have corralled most of the mineral and natural resources mm -hmm. in, Af in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in your thoughts about that. When did that happen? What does it look like in the future? Secondly, mm -hmm. I went to a talk some years, not that many years ago at the law school with Congressman Lee Hamilton. He said mm -hmm. Pakistan was the most dangerous country in the world. Mm -hmm. It's interesting <coughs> to talk about that since you were based there and have kind of seen the progress of relationships and the deterioration. <laughs> Yeah, um, with regard to the uh, to the Chinese, uh, one of the and, and, and frankly, I, I know very little about China or Chinese foreign policy, so I feel a great liberty to, to expound it at a great length. Um, um, so, yeah, um, and uh, I guess the, the, the quarrel that I would have with, with the Chinese is that they they are very willing and very aggressive in following what they see as their national interest. In, as, as fairly narrowly defined, and yet they're not willing to, to take a whole lot of responsibility in the way that, that, that the Americans and the, and the British are, at least at, at this juncture. And yeah, they, in Afghanistan, they've seized on the opportunity to go in and, and sign some very lucrative contracts, what they hope will be very lucrative contracts for mineral wealth in Afghanistan. There's a tremendous amount of it. And I think that the, the biggest project the Chinese have gotten involved in is a, is a place called uh, Mesainak, where they have a, a huge copper mine. Uh, which, uh, which could turn out very well if you had at least you know, a basic level of, of stability and security inside of uh, Afghanistan. And the, the Chinese also have a, a, an important interest, if you will, in Afghanistan in virtue of the fact that, that one of the components of those you know, foreign militants uh, who, who had sought refuge inside Afghanistan are, are Chinese Uyghurs. And uh, the Chinese are very, very concerned about, about Muslim extremism among the, the, the Chinese Uyghur 
Chinese population in the, in the far southwest of uh, of the country, and so that they have a they have a, a national security issue there as well. And yet they have not been willing, really, frankly, to, to step up and and take the risks involved in in genuine engagement inside uh, of Afghanistan, even in support of that national security interest. They're very glad to to let the Americans take care of that. Thank you very much. And so I think there are, there are some who who say, well, now, wait a minute, you know, Americans have been spending a lot of blood and treasure in Afghanistan. How come they're getting the, the lucrative contracts? And I think, you know, obviously I think the Afghans should be, should be and, and it's understandable that they would try to seek the best deals that, uh, that they could. Um, but, you know, there it is. I, I think uh, in, in Afghanistan, as elsewhere in the world, I think we could see that the Chinese playing what I would regard as, as a more responsible policy where they actually take on you know, responsibility as well as, as, uh, as seeking benefits to themselves. Um, and, and the second part of your question? About, uh, Pakistan being the most dangerous country in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Pakistan is a, is, a, is, a, is a fascinating place. Um, and I, actually, I, my family was there with me for the first two years uh, that we were there in country. And uh, since I was chained to a desk, actually, my wife traveled around and saw a whole lot more of the country than, than I did. You know, she, she climbed Nanga Parbat with a group of women and went on a float trip down the Indus River. Uh, did all kinds of, of uh, wonderful things that, you, frankly, you, you couldn't do right now because of the, the security situation. But yeah, it is, it is, it, it's, it's a very dangerous country, and in part because uh, the, the, the government of Pakistan, dating back from the 1980s, has attempted to use uh, Islamic militancy as, a, as an instrument of foreign policy. They, they've used uh, Islamic militancy, and specifically in Islamic militants, they've encouraged them, for instance, to carry on a jihad against the Indians, in Kashmir, where they don't like the, the status quo, they, uh, they, they were instrumental not only in supporting the Mujahideen against the Soviets, which we thought was a very good thing in Afghanistan, uh, but also went on afterwards and, uh, and, uh, and supported the Taliban, which we thought was a less good thing. Um, and, and that, as many of us predicted, and as the Pakistanis were, were very reluctant to hear, uh, has had unintended consequences domestically within Pakistan. And frankly, some of the things that I and then my successors in Pakistan pushed the Pakistanis to do in order to get after Islamic militants, particularly in the tribal areas, uh, had the unintended negative consequence of further fueling Islamic radicalism, particularly in, in the tribal areas, but also in other parts of the country as well. And in fact, you, so you have, uh, you have very, uh, uh, very important and powerful um, uh, insurgents who are fighting against the central government of Pakistan that you didn't have before. So, so arguably the situation inside Pakistan in terms of their, their dealing with, uh, with extremism is, is considerably worse now than it was back before 9-11. That all is a negative unintended consequence of, of, of what we were doing across the border inside Afghanistan. And when you consider the, the fact that uh, this is a country of you know, what, uh, 190 million and they have nuclear weapons, I mean, there are a lot of things that, that could go wrong there. So yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with uh, with uh, former Congressman Hamilton, that, that it's it's certainly among, if not the most dangerous country in the world. Yes, sir. Mm. Yeah, my name is Paul Miller. I'm the Associate Director of the Climate Center. So thank you very much ah. for coming here. This has just been a fantastic mm -hmm. talk. Um, Afghanistan and Pakistan is something that I've uh, followed quite a bit myself. I served mm -hmm. here with the Army in 2002. Uh -huh. And then I actually sat at the AFPAC desk as an analyst at CIA for a couple of years. Uh -huh. And then the same desk at, at NSU for a couple of years. So, well, God bless you. That's my sunny disposition. You started out by saying that the solution in Afghanistan is achieving a political settlement, a political dispensation. Yeah. The Afghan government will be able to deny terror safe haven on its own. I think it's right. exactly, exactly 
objective light. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you expressed concern about the American drawdown of troops. Uh, right. Concern I share. Right. Um, so my question for you is, uh, what is still missing? You know, mm-hmm. Here today in 2015, 2016, what's still missing and what do we have yet to do to finally achieve that political settlement mm-hmm. consolidate our gains? Maybe a, a way of putting it is, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to the president who takes office in January of 2017? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, well, I, I think that he should maintain a, a U.S. troop presence <laughs> inside of Afghanistan. And, um, but uh, but again, she. Uh, or she, she. <laughs> Indeed, gosh. What was I thinking? Uh, <laughs> um, yes, that uh, she should maintain a, a, a U.S. troop presence inside of, a, of, a, of Afghanistan. Um, and I think that, that uh, oddly enough, that the Pakistanis would welcome that because they, they realize that a, an Afghanistan which is completely controlled by the Afghan Taliban is not a good thing for them because it would be a, a safe haven not just for international terrorists that we're primarily concerned with, but with their homegrown terrorists and extremists you know, who, who already are finding safe haven inside Taliban-controlled areas of Afghanistan in order to carry on the, the war with them at home. Um, so I, I think that the, the U.S. presence, it has to be sustainable. It has to be one where it is supportive of elements uh, inside of Afghanistan. The problem in this instance, as we see in so many other places around the world, is that it's great to be able to say in theory, well, that we, we need to be working in support of indigenous forces. The, the problem is when you don't have the indigenous forces that you want. And, you know, so there are large parts of, uh, of the country where um, we, you simply don't have individuals who have the right tribal standing and, and the courage uh, to stand up and resist the Taliban. I think in those areas, and, and you, can't, you can't manufacture that, and I think in those areas where people are willing to do that, and, and we've seen them pop up all over, all over the country, we need to be in a position and be willing to, to step up and, and support them. And I think that, you know, I'm sure you're very familiar with, the, with what's euphemistically called uh, the Afghan local police Program, which I, I think was a tremendous thing. It succeeded very well in other areas, less well in in uh, in some others. That's very much you know dependent on the quality of the people that you're that you're trying to support, and frankly, and the wisdom and the knowledge of the people who are trying to support them and trying to again get them to be the best warlords that they can be. Um, but I, it, it takes a tremendous amount of of um, uh, of engagement. It takes a, a willingness to work for the long term. Uh, it takes an ability to uh, be opportunistic, to seize on opportunities as, uh, as they arise. Uh, but it also takes a tremendous amount of patience, and that's not something that we as Americans are, are noted for. Yes? First, um, my name is Jody Rosenstein. I'm a PhD student here at LBJ. Mm-hmm. And I, too, spent some time in... Um, Eastern Afghanistan with USAID um, uh-huh. for m- most of uh, the past five years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and my question for you actually um, follows um, um, Dr. Miller's question and the ALP. Mm-hmm. Um, when we consider that we have tried to do a centralized government, still the government of Com- Kabul, as much as we've tried through you know various ministries to decentralize mm-hmm. it, it's extremely centralized. Mm-hmm. But we have created these um, the ALP, you know, little militias that in some places mm-hmm. are exhibiting extremely predatory behavior. Right. Um, and in some places our SF troops can only train them for a matter of weeks these days. Right. So we, we kind of have that plan that you had thought of the first time. Use mm-hmm. the warlords, the best warlords you could do, <laughs> and, you know, get that interagency environment to support them. Mm-hmm. Yet we also have that extremely centralized government that can't get out into the, or reach out into the hinterland. Right. Um, and to couple top on top of that, we've got 
the numbers of troops, 10,000, yeah. um, but who are really not getting out of the wire to do that engagement of those right. warlords and um, from friends who are still there doing what they're calling advising by telephone. And they have a great acronym for it. Um, but that engagement is really not there. So then mm. I guess if your yeah. advice to the president mm -hmm. to keep the troops, what yeah. is the advice to the next um, General Campbell? Yeah. What, what uh, did, did you all did you all hear? No. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, because it, it, you just you just provide a, a lot of really useful information. That this is a young woman who spent a lot of time with uh, with USAID in eastern Afghanistan for the last five years, so she knows a whole lot of stuff on the ground that that, that I certainly don't. Um, but and let me see, let me see if I've got your your question correct, and that is that okay. Uh, the the U.S. has of late tried to uh, encourage. Uh, the, the formation of, of local militias that are willing to, uh, to resist the Taliban in their own areas. Uh, in some cases, that has worked out well. In other cases, these are militias that have been, eventually been, been preying on the local people. You know, not, not a good result that, that you're looking for. If anything, driving people you know, back into the arms uh, of the Taliban. By the same token, we haven't abandoned this notion of you know, supporting a centralized Afghan government, which you know, has, has, has not been very effective. In fact, we could go on at great length on that. I, I would argue that, that the centralized Afghan government has become a, a vertically integrated criminal enterprise, um, where essentially you have uh, appointments uh, down at the, at the lowest local level, you know, you know, uh, uh, district governors, uh, you know, local uh, customs collectors, who are being appointed directly from Kabul, often, and, and essentially those are licenses to steal, and then the ill-gotten gains that they were able to get at the local level then get passed up to the people who empowered them in the first place, which is a very, very negative situation uh, to have. And I mean, you, you're still, still seeing that in Afghanistan today. So in, in those circumstances, you know, what, do you, what do you do about it, particularly given the, the fact that we have you know, so few American troops on the ground? And uh, at best, they're, even in, with the successful local militias, they're only able to spend... You know, typically just a few weeks, trying to provide them some modicum of training before they then disappear, and they're trying to advise them by telephone, which really doesn't work particularly well anywhere, but arguably still less in Afghanistan. So what do you do about that? And under those circumstances, what would we advise the next General Campbell? And is that pretty much that capture? Okay. Um, that, uh, and I guess what I would say is that I, I don't know what the right number is. I don't know if it should be, you know, 9,800, which is what you know, the Obama administration you know, stuck on, or it should be a little bit more or a little bit less. But I think what's most important, what I think part of what you're getting at is, is that it's not so much how many you've got, but what they're doing and, and what, their, what their role is. And, and quite frankly, I think that, that by and large, anymore, um, the, the main role of U.S. troops in Afghanistan is not to get killed because that's a very bad thing politically. And, you know, if you, if you get people outside the wire doing the difficult things that arguably we want them to do, some people are going to get hurt. I mean, that, that's, that's just, that's just a, a fact of life. And I think that, that that's a risk that I know the U.S. military is willing to undertake. And I think that, that we as a government and a people need to, to be willing to shoulder, again, on a sustainable basis, not running in 100,000 U.S. troops and spending $100 billion a year. Um, but I, I think that we need to be willing to get out there much more aggressively than, uh, than we are right now. And frankly, this is a phenomenon that we're seeing elsewhere in the world uh, as well. I mean, we, we've got a limited number of troops in, uh, in Iraq. And you know, once again, you know, their, their, their watchword appears to be, thou shalt not be killed. 
Um, and uh, we don't want to see people getting hurt. We certainly don't want to see uh, American colleagues getting hurt. But quite frankly, in order for them to be effective in their support of the, of the Iraqis, we need to have special forces that are out there on the front line you know, helping to, uh, to direct airstrikes. And we, we don't have that right now because we're trying to keep them out of harm's way. Last question. Okay. Um, see, some folks here have been, um, have been very patient. Did, have, have you asked a question yet? Okay. <laughs> well, you, you can come and ask me afterwards. How's that? So I'll ask this, this fellow right over here. Excuse me. Uh, two quick questions. Yeah. Uh, first, do you believe, or sorry, this question. Uh, ben McNally, I'm a junior here at UT and a Clinton mm-hmm. Center undergraduate fellow. First mm-hmm. question. Do you believe that the drone program has been detrimental to our relationships with Pakistan? Mm-hmm. And second question, what do you believe makes a good case officer? Hmm. Uh, gosh, did you all hear, hear the, the, the question? Uh, First question has to do with a, a program that the CIA uh, does not acknowledge. Um, and <laughs> so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what I can say. Um, but uh, uh, it, it is reported in the press that the CIA uh, has maintained a drone program uh, in, in, uh, within the, the borders of Pakistan, and that as a possible consequence, you know, a certain number of individuals have disappeared in a, in a puff of smoke, and nobody is quite sure why. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and I think that the question is, have there been unintended negative consequences as a result of, of, of U.S. drone policy in Pakistan? And, and the short answer, of course, is yes. Um, but you know, following on that, it's, well, and, and therefore, what? And what, what we saw, you know, going back a number of years ago, um, you know, before, you know, 2007, 2008, the, the, the U.S. effort inside of Pakistan... Uh, using drones was it was very narrowly gauged, and we were essentially targeting um, terrorists, properly so-called. Uh, and there was a lot of there was a lot of effort that went into the, the, the targeting of those individuals, et cetera, et cetera. Well, well as we saw the problem of cross-border militancy from Pakistan increasing, particularly as we got into 2007, 2008, and we saw commensurately the number of drone strikes in those areas go up astronomically. The reason was, in my estimation, that, that we'd gone from using drones as a counterterrorism tool, you know, as narrowly defined, and was, we're using it as a counterinsurgency tool. And instead of trying to strike at carefully targeted individuals whose names we knew, instead we were, we were doing uh, so-called, um, uh, what was the term of art? Signature, Signature strikes. So, so if you saw patterns of activity of large groups of, of armed men, then that then suggested that these were cross-border militants and therefore they could, they could be attacked. And therefore, the, the, um, the, the collateral civilian casualties associated with that also rose commensurately, and that had a much bigger political effect within Pakistan than those, those, uh, those very carefully calibrated strikes that were focused only against you know, foreigners, non-Pakistanis, uh, which... Pakistanis, by and large, were, were much more willing to accept. We started uh, attacking large numbers uh, of militants that were Pakistanis and based in, inside Pakistan. As you can imagine, that had a, a big political effect inside Pakistan. And yeah, arguably, as a result, we were creating you know, more militants than, in fact, we were, we were killing at the time. The, the problem is, what do you do about it? I mean, you can, you can say that, yes, it does have this consequence. We've seen it play out over time. The problem is, if you're an American policymaker, and, and particularly if you are an American military commander in Afghanistan, and these militants are coming with impunity across the border to kill your people, well, you know, when you raise your hand and say, well, you know, this is having a negative political con- uh, consequence inside Pakistan, and we're creating more militancy, well, that, that, that seems like, you know, 
you know, well, it kind of, it, it's too bad, and we understand this kind of, kind of an academic concern that you have, but in the meantime, we've got to make sure these people aren't killing our soldiers. And so you can understand the dynamic that, uh, that takes hold there. And, and I guess I, 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 would, I would have argued that we should have been a little bit more careful, a little bit more calibrated, but at the end of the, uh, of the day, we were going to be launching strikes in the tribal areas. As long as there were American troops to protect inside Afghanistan, there was really nothing to be done about it, and that was going to have negative consequences in Pakistan, and I, I just don't see how you, how you square that circle. So that, that's... Um, so there it is. And, and, I, and you know, part of the consequence here has been, or the, the, part of the solution has been to get the American troops in, in substantial numbers out of Afghanistan. So I've taken the, the lead on the fight there. And what makes a good case <laughs> officer? Uh, it's the dark suits. <laughs> yeah. anyway. Well, there it's out of the bag. <laughs> Join me in thanking Bob. This is okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Steve. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate that.